Glad you're here. Uh, glad we get to dig into the Word together. Uh, another real cool benefit of being a pastor is just the time that I get to be entrenched in the Word. And, uh, and it seems like ministry is just on my mind all the time. And so uh, this week, uh, I feel like God every once in a while needs to get my attention and, and tell me that communing with Him is more important than thinking about the church. Communing with God is more important than, than writing a sermon. Communing with God is more important than doing any other thing that's related to being a pastor. And my, my car broke down on Monday night. I'm away home from an elder meeting. And, uh, and so I took a vacation day Wednesday to fix it. So I spent my day Wednesday toying around with the engine compartment of my car and, uh, and got it fixed. And I realized at the end of the day that I had spent a whole lot of time communing with God and not thinking about ministry. And uh, it felt really good. It felt really refreshing. But in that, God brought to mind a lot of stuff that when I got back into the swing of things on Thursday and started tearing into the Word again to, to make sure that things were ready for today, uh, this, this passage jumped out at me in ways that I didn't see before that. And I just learned the value of just stepping away from day-to-day responsibilities, whatever yours are, look different than mine, I'm sure, and mine look different than yours, and that's true of all of us, uh, the 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 honor and the privilege is to step away from that sometimes and just focus in on being with God under any circumstance that you're in and, uh, and how He used that time to really make things come to life. So if you're, if you're following along with us, we've, we're in the book of Acts. We're, we've worked our way up. We're in chapter 4 today. If you want to follow along in the Bible in front of you, that's on page 630. And, uh, and so last week we saw how Peter and John are on their way into the temple for worship, uh, into the temple for teaching, and they're, they're coming up on the beautiful gate, the gate beautiful, and they find this man uh, who is crippled since birth, and he is sitting outside of the gate, and he's asking for money. And uh, if you were here last week, you might remember, but if you weren't, just for the sake of uh, just for the sake of review, if you were born with any kind of deformity like this or any kind of handicap like this, you, it, in the Jewish customs, you, it, was, it was unlawful or against God's law to do anything to harm the baby at all. So the parent's responsibility was to raise the child. In pagan society, outside of the law of God, they would have practiced infanticide and the baby would have been put to death when it was born. But the paradox in the Jewish community was that these people became sort of outcasts in society. So they were valued to be born. They were valued to have life brought, for their life to be brought into this world and for their life to be given to them. But their, their value wasn't given to them as a person overall. So there wasn't this village mentality of we're going to come alongside these parents in this trying time as they raise this baby under difficult circumstances. And, and so the, in, in our society, if your baby was born with some kind of... Uh, disability like this one was, there would be all kinds of medical treatments that were available. There would be braces that you could put on the, the baby's legs. I forgot to bring it with me today. I wanted to bring it and show it to you, but I was pigeon-toed pretty severely when I was a baby, and this was in 1979. And, uh, and so the thing that they used to fix it was my parents had bought me stride-right walking shoes. My dad was so proud of himself that he got really good. You remember parents when you had to buy walking shoes for your kids, those white ones? 
So they, they get this brace, and it was, it's a metal brace with these shoes. They asked my parents to bring the walking shoes with them, and they cut the toes off on them. So my dad was so upset about. And they put this, my shoes on this brace that had nuts on the bottom of it, and you would, you would make the shoes go like this, and then I'd have to sleep in it. So it was a metal brace that, that would push my feet out like this. And I still have the brace. It's at my house. And then I'd have to sleep in this brace that pushed my feet out like this so that I wouldn't be pigeon-toed. Now, it's not, they don't do that anymore. <laughs> There's other ways that they fix it. But, but that got me thinking that this, this kid, this poor kid and these parents, there was no, there was nothing for them, nothing. So this is the way he was born. This is the way he's going to live. That's, that's, that was their reality. There was no relief. And so the only way that you were be able to get relief was you would have to beg God's people because you knew that they knew the law, and in the law they were to provide for those less fortunate than themselves. So he strategically was placed, I'm sure, at, at some point in his life outside of the beautiful gate because that's where most of the wealth of the city would be entering through those gates. And he's made a living doing this. It's the only thing he's ever known. So in walks Peter and John one day, and they see him sitting there, and he says, alms, 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 and he's asking for money. And Peter stops, and he makes him look at him. This guy, so you see, doesn't make eye contact with people. And he makes him look at him. He says, gold and silver, I have none. But what I do have, I freely give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he does. And the power of the Spirit is displayed not just in Peter's life, but in the life of the man who sat there his whole life. And he's now completely healed in front of all the people, including the Jewish leaders of the day. Now a crowd starts to gather, of course, because they know this guy has been there a while. And Peter preaches a really good message. And at the end of that message... Uh, he, he says in verse 26 of chapter 3, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And that's where it ends. That's the end of chapter 3. Now, Luke didn't write it this way. Just so you know, chapters and verses weren't written by Luke whenever he wrote this. Uh, they were added much later, much later when the canon was developed into what you have in front of you is the Holy Bible. That's when it's split up in the chapter and verse. Sometimes whenever I look at this, I wonder what the Greek would have said and why they would have chosen to end it right there and go into the next thing. Uh, but uh, it'll kind of make sense whenever we go into this because last week we end on a little bit of a cliffhanger as Peter's preaching. So picture what's happening here. A man who has been sitting by the gate his whole life uh, asking for, for help and begging for money and that's how he made his living, is completely restored, draws a crowd, obviously, and Peter starts preaching the gospel, which brings more people in. That's where we left off last week, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 22. Listen to what Peter continues to say and what's happening here. So the crowd is gathered, Chapter 4, verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day... 
Their rulers, well, before we go any further, let some of that information sink in. Why are they upset? Why are these religious leaders upset? First of all, uh, the, the priest and the captain of the temple, the captain of the temple was basically the high priest's right-hand man. He had authority. He was kind of like uh, the sheriff. He was kind of like the one that, that policed the law. And the high priest was the one that taught it and, uh, and sort of controlled it. So as these men gather, they're greatly annoyed, it says. Why? Because they were teaching the people. That's the first thing they were annoyed at. These common men were in the courtyard teaching the people. How dare they? They don't have formal education. They don't have the degrees hanging on the wall. They don't have any kind of formal uh, education and training. They're, they're, they're just these common men. Who are they to supersede us in the teaching of the people? Look at all these people gathered. So we're very annoyed because this is our job. That's what they think. And then they're annoyed because not just they're teaching the people, but because they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, they put Jesus to death. And for all we know, the men that are standing here, they're, they're not in on the very closed circle of people who know that Jesus was not dead. The Jewish rulers that know He wasn't dead and formulated a lie at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, that they said, go and tell them that the body was stolen by His followers. And then it says in Matthew that 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 story has been, that lie has been spread to this very day is what it says in Matthew 28. So we don't know that the men that are standing in this circle that are annoyed and bothered by the teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah have any idea about the lie that their own leaders have formulated and spread out through their own community. So they're upset that these, that these men are standing here educating the people that Jesus is going to resurrect them from the dead. So what do they do? They do what men in power do. They try to control the situation. They try to get rid of the threat. So verse 3, they arrest them. They put them in custody until the next day. They make them sit in prison overnight. Verse 4, but in spite of all of that, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Are you keeping track of all these thousands of people that have come to know Christ so far, that have heard this teaching of the gospel, and it has penetrated their hearts? Now we're up to, there's another 5,000. Okay, so Peter and John, they get arrested. They're sitting in prison overnight. In the meantime, while they're in prison, their other followers of Jesus are there, obviously, and they're going to help the other people understand the decision they just made. And so 5,000 people come to know Christ, even though the leaders tried to put them in jail. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, these guys are in on the closed circle of the lie that was told about Jesus. These men are the ones who came up with it. These men are the ones that architected it. Caiaphas is the one who wrote that, okay? So verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But they had commanded them to leave the council. They conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that is a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I don't think it's going to work, but we'll see. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. There's a whole lot here. There's a whole lot here. This is one of my most favorite passages in the book of Acts because Peter goes from being a nobody fisherman to a coward to the most bold man we see in the, in the emergence of the church. He goes from being this obscure, unknown fisherman to a follower of Jesus, to a coward, to a restored man who now is practicing boldness at levels we've never seen. Not from a follower of Jesus. We've only seen this kind of boldness from Jesus. New Testament history, I mean. So let's just unpack what's happening here a little bit. The Jewish leaders were angry. And like I said, they were, they were angry for a lot of reasons. And we, were, we know why they were annoyed. But there are three things that I think that, that are attacking them in this moment. The first thing is ignorance. There's an ignorance about them. See, they're supposed to be educated. These men have spent their whole life memorizing the Old Testament. Not just reading it, not just studying it. Like the only way they could pass the priestly test was to have the whole first five books of the Old Testament completely memorized. These guys know it in their heads, right? They know it. They can repeat it. They live it. They teach it. This, their whole life from like the time they were born has been them committed to this. And yet in this moment, we see their ignorance exposed because they're being shown up in their teaching by these men. So we see their ignorance. They're supposed to be educated men. We see their arrogance in this. Their arrogance. 
They try to stop this whole thing just by putting some guys in jail overnight. That's going to make it go away. They come in and say, how dare you? You can leave, but don't you ever speak in the name of Jesus again. Now, who do they think they are? Who do they think they are? You can see an arrogance about them even in, the, in what they're demanding of the two followers of Jesus in this moment, don't you? I mean, there's a, there is a, a brazenness and an arrogance that's there that is rooted in something that is not anywhere close to the character of God. And then the third thing we see come out of them in this moment is fear. Fear. Because they're starting to see the foundations of the kingdom they've built for centuries start to crumble. They're seeing it fall apart brick by brick. And so when, when Peter says the words, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, he's quoting the whole way back to the book of Psalms whenever that's quoted by David. And he's saying that the stone that you were to, supposed to build this upon, you rejected. And now he's become the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone is one of the most foundational and important pieces that you build the building on. Now, we know nowadays that it's more symbolic than it is actual structural. But the cornerstone was what everything was built upon. And so when he looks at them and says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and he's talking about Jesus, he's saying that to the men that no, they cannot explain what happened to the body of Jesus. They can't explain it. And they have guards that are telling them what happened. And they don't want to believe it. So all of this is going on in their heads. And they're, so they're arrogant, they're ignorant, but they're also very fearful because any kingdom that's not built on eternal principles will crumble. And if you've ever been around somebody that they're... they're their kingdom starts to crumble, you see some desperation moves. Am I right? Maybe some of you are old enough to remember the white Bronco chase with O.J. Simpson. I don't know why it was so captivating, but I remember being glued to the television. Every channel was, was, was aerial footage of a white Bronco. And O.J. Simpson was in that Bronco. And there was so, his whole world had started to crumble. Now, we know the glove didn't fit, so they must have quit. We know all of that. But you saw desperation moves being done by a man who at one point in time was on top of the world. And that's what people do whenever the kingdom they've built for themselves starts to crumble. They will lie, cheat, and steal whatever has to take place to keep their kingdom together. They will do it. They will do whatever it takes. And that's what we see the religious leaders of the day start to do in this second. In this interaction, that's what we start to see. But look at verses 13 and 14 again. These are some of my favorite passages in the Scriptures. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. That's a pretty cool sentence in and of itself, but the next one is the best one. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
I think that those two verses should be all of our life verses. I think that this interaction right here, this should be like on on plaques and, you know, I don't know what your stance is on tattoos, but if you get a tattoo, it should be these ones, not, not the wrong one. That's a long story if you ever want to hear it. But when they saw the boldness of Peter, so they're telling him, and Peter's, Peter's coming back at them with truth. Now notice, Peter's not looking at them saying, you guys are idiots. He's not being disrespectful. He's not disrespecting the people that are authority figures. He's not, he's not telling them that they're, they're wrong. This, Peter's actually teaching a really great course in civil discourse. Now, we live in a society where if I'm right, then you're wrong and you're an idiot. That's how we interact with one another. This is what I believe. You don't believe it. You're a moron. That's our posture as Americans. So when we run up against someone that has different ideals than us, different philosophies than us, that's our, that's our posture. We might not say it. and Our positions might be correct, but our dispositions are a lot of times terrible. And Peter teaches a really awesome master-level course on how to have civil discourse, how to have civil disagreement with someone. Because he said, when they asked, by what power or what name did you do this? If, if you're asking me today concerning a good deed to a crippled man, and by what means he was healed, if that's the question, let it be known to anyone in audience today that this was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who, by the way, you put to death, but God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you. And then he goes on to tell them that you rejected this stone and you built your foundations on something that wasn't him and is starting to crumble because he is becoming the cornerstone. See all these people outside that are believing this message and giving their lives and devoting their lives to it and have a boldness about them? They are building their lives. That Jesus is becoming their cornerstone and your foundations that you've built upon your own principles are starting to crumble. That's what he's telling them. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived, now wait a second, he's not formally trained. He doesn't have any degrees hanging on the wall. This man is a fisherman that spent time with a homeless man that used to be a carpenter. It's astonishing what he knows. It's astonishing how he's talking to us. And the last person that talked to us like this was Jesus. That's what's happening right here. The last person that spoke to us like this was Jesus himself. That's what it means when it says that they, had, they perceived and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Because the last time they interacted with someone like this, it was Jesus. Now, this little juicy tidbit comes in at verse 22 that I think puts a capstone on why this is such an important interaction and why this really does change the trajectory of the power shift. See, the power is shifting in this moment. And this is a huge moment in the life of the Jewish leaders of the day. Verse 22, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I don't know how much more than 40 years old. Maybe they stopped keeping track when you turned 40. That'd be nice, right? 
How old are you? I'm just, I'm more than 40. So I'll be 40 this year. So I started to picture myself having to sit outside of the gate my whole life up to this point. And then more than that, obviously, because he was more than 40 years old. So do you think the people were well aware of this man's situation? Do you think there was any room for them to say, that's just emotion? This is just an emotional thing. No, this man had crippled, calcified bones that didn't work for over 40 years. He's been sitting outside this gate and begging. And now there is a huge crowd gathered that saw this man's legs miraculously restored. Not only that, but they sent him to jail with these other two and they're questioning him in the morning. They are clinging on. He is clinging on to Peter and John the whole time during this. And the, and the leaders of the day realize that they could, because they want to, they could punish these two, lead, these two Jesus followers just like they did with Jesus. They could, but A, they don't have any grounds to, and B, this thing was verified by thousands of people that stood there and watched it happen. They're stuck. So what do they do? The last act of desperate men, they threaten them. They don't have anything to take from them, but they're threatening them. And so their threat is, you can leave, but don't you ever speak of this Jesus again. And Peter responds again with boldness. He says, you ask for yourself whether it's right for us to obey you or obey God. But for us, we're going to obey God. And with that, they had to let them go. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, no, we're serious, don't you do this, right? When they had further threatened them, they let them go. Why? They found no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God. Why? Because of what had happened. What had happened is they dropped this bombshell on us the next time. The cliffhanger was we don't know how old this guy was. When we ended chapter 3, we just knew some guy that was crippled got healed. He could have been 12. He could have been 13. It wouldn't have made it any less miraculous, I don't think. But, but there's, there's, there is a huge difference between somebody that, that got healed of something that nobody really knew he had and someone who had for over 40 years sat at that spot and the people of the city had walked in and out and seen him and given money to him and cared for him and maybe brought him some food and some clothes and some water for over 40 years. And all of a sudden, these two men who claim to love Jesus, who claim to be followers of the way, it becomes known as, stand there and say, we don't have any money. We don't even have homes right now. Here's what we do have. We have the power of the living God, and in His name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I want you to stand up and I want you to walk. And He does. And there were thousands of witnesses. And now, the Jewish rulers of the day who have misinterpreted God's Word and denied Jesus as the Messiah are shaking in their boots. It begins a whole new era in the life of the church. It was all sort of rainbows and butterflies up to this moment. But then... Then we get to the next part. We get to the next part. Peter and John in their wisdom decide to go back to the followers and do something that they find to be foundationally important to the existence of the church moving forward. 
because they know they just poked the hornet's nest. They didn't do it just to do it. They didn't do it just to make people mad, but they did just shake up the establishment, and Jesus used them to do it. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, now stop for a second. They come back into the group where all the other followers of Jesus are, and the first thing they do is say, okay, guys, this is where we were. This is what happened. We got arrested. Now, the last time that some of their friends, Jesus, got arrested by the priests and taken in overnight, it did not end well. So imagine how these people were feeling when they see Peter and John walk back into the gathering, and they're like, well, tell us all about it, what happened. And so they do. They give them a full report on what happened. What's the next thing they do? They pray. Listen to their prayer. Second part of verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's just stop there for a second and look at this. Look at how they responded. They come back, they give a full report. Now, I don't know what those threats were when it says after they had threatened them further, but I can make a pretty safe assumption based on the interactions we've seen of these high priests before, especially in the life of Jesus, is whenever they looked at him and Pontius Pilate said it, and the chief priests were saying it. Do you not realize where you're sitting right now, Jesus? We have the power and authority to put you to death. What did Jesus say to Pontius Pilate when he said that to him? He said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you by my father. So I imagine, I'm making the assumption, that some of the threats that were mustered to them were saying things like, Listen, guys, you know what happened to Jesus, right? You know we, what we did to him. You know how we took care of him, right? So we're telling you, we're giving you a chance here. We're throwing you a bone. Walk out those doors, stop speaking in the name of Jesus, and everything will be fine for you. But if you walk out those doors and keep speaking on Jesus, your fate is going to be just like his, and we have the power to do it, so don't test us. That's the tone, I'm guessing, I'm assuming, takes place with these followers of Jesus. So when they were released, they go back to the followers, they give a full report, and then they pray. They pray. Let's look at how they responded. Again, they prayed. They didn't pray that they wouldn't be persecuted. 
Do you realize that? They didn't gather together and say, guys, we are terrified. Do you realize we all watched Jesus get beaten within an inch of his life and then crucified, brutally put to death? We saw it and they did it. We don't want that to happen to us. So let's pray that God protects us from this persecution. Let's pray that God keeps us safe. Let's pray that God makes sure that we don't ever get hurt or damaged. Let's make sure that our faith played out in this society is as easy as possible. Let's pray for that. Now, I'm being facetious because I find myself tempted to pray those kind of prayers as opposed to how these guys actually prayed. Did you ever have someone do something for you that is super generous to you, something that sort of stands out to you, like... uh, I'm really blown away that they did that. And you thank them for it. And their response back to you is, of course. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me a couple occasions. And I've wondered sometimes, like, why would they respond with, of course? It's because that's who they are. Like their action that they just did to bless you or to care for something for you or to step in and help you with something, that's just, that is, that is an action that's coming out of who they are at their core. They say, of course. The reason I bring that up is that when the apostles respond to the persecution, they're responding out of who the Holy Spirit has made them into. So if someone were to look at them and say, I'm, I'm just blown away that you didn't come back together and pray that you'd be protected from the persecution. I, I'm astonished that you prayed uh, that, that God would give you boldness. I can picture the apostles saying, of course we did. Of course we prayed for boldness. They prayed for Boldness. They prayed that they, they sought, they, they searched back to the scriptures where David says, why do people, basically what David is saying where they're quoting here is, why do people try to rise up against the holy God? And now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all Boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's the opportunity they had right there to pray for protection. That's the opportunity they had to pray for safety right there. It even made good, it was, it would even made good sentence structure. And now, Lord. We know what these men are capable of. We saw what they did to you. We know what they're threatening us. But now, Lord, look upon their threats and give us boldness. Allow us the privilege of speaking your word with boldness. And then you will stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders will be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is a very selfless prayer. Never once did they take any credit for what they're doing. They don't even pray for strength. 
They don't even pray, God, give me the strength to do your will. God, give me the strength to do. They're not, this is, there's no selfishness in this prayer. When I started to really read through this and run this through my mind and listen to it several times, I started to hear how selfish my prayers are. Now, I'm not throwing that indictment on you. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that if He feels it's necessary. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about how selfish my prayers can be because I can say, God, may you continue to do your will through me. And although there might be a reality that God does things through us, look at how these people are praying. Peter doesn't see that he performed a miracle through the power of the Spirit. That's not how he sees it. He actually says that God stretched out His hand to heal. God did that. So they don't pray for strength. They don't pray for uh, perseverance. They pray for boldness. They have the spirit of the living God inside them. They don't need strength. They've got the spirit of living God inside them. They don't need education. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't important. Don't read into that too far. In this moment, they're saying, what is the best response to what's about to come down on us? Because they're going to rain down on us hard. They want this to quit. They want this to go away. So what do they pray for? We're going to keep doing this, God. We're going to keep doing this. And I pray, this is Peter, remember, I pray for boldness because I know what it feels like to fail you and I never want to do it again. I know what it feels like to be questioned about my faith in you and I never want to feel that again. I want boldness, God, to proclaim your truth well. And as you stretch out your hands, as you bring healings, and as you perform things through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, may we have boldness. Now, look at how God responds. You want to know what it feels like when God is honored through our prayers? This is it. This is like top of the mark moment. When they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what? Continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When God had heard their prayers, He was so honored through this request that the place that they were in was shaken. This is God's Spirit manifesting itself in the people. This is a, another Pentecost moment. It gets overlooked because there's no flames and there's no... Uh, there's, there's no uh, different languages being spoken. But there's an earthquake that resides in the room where they're at. And they left that place and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So there is persecution and there's threats. And it's scary because they know what these people are capable of. So they pray for boldness. God is honored in their prayers, verse 32 through 37. This will get us through the end of the chapter. Now the full number of those who believed were all of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace 
was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's an important place to end because it, it leads us up to the next week. But do you see, this is the second time. This is the second time or even the third time where we get a glimpse of what life looked like through a unified church. What life looked like when people were fully committed to the gospel. You realize so far we've seen thousands of people give their lives to Jesus. We've seen thousands of people give their lives to Christ. And they're they're irrationally going back and taking inventory of the things that they could up to that moment call their own. And instead of saying from that point forward, no, this is mine. They're looking at the whole group of people like-minded as they are, and they're saying, what can we do to further this up? What can we do to remove any obstacle or any distraction to this message going forward? If someone not having what I tend to have is keeping them from having boldness and living out of who Christ is, then I'm going to get rid of some of what I have to help them get further along down the road. If someone doesn't have something that would benefit them to have food, shelter. Because verse 34 says, amongst the followers of Jesus, thousands of people, by the way, there was not a needy person among them. Not one. And it wasn't because they had some funds set up as a church that you filled out paperwork to be able to get. It wasn't because of a government assistance program. It wasn't because you had one generous benefactor that just poured money back into the community. It was because everybody viewed their stuff as everybody's stuff. It was because there was a hands-open approach to life to say this is all God's anyway. Now, how can we switch? This was a question I think they wrestled with. How can we switch over from something being exclusively ours to something being collectively ours to further the gospel? And if it made more sense to further the gospel, to sell the land, they sold the land. And then they brought the money to the apostles and they said, you're our teachers, you're our leaders, use this how you see fit to further the gospel. That's how they lived. Why they highlight Barnabas might not make a whole lot of sense right now, but I think it will next week when we start looking into chapter 5. Why they highlight one person? With great power, verse 33, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So a couple questions come to mind as we end this passage. What do our prayers sound like? What do our prayers sound like? What are we asking for? What are we going to God with? What is important to us to pray for and pray out of? 
Do we really believe in faith that God is better than anything else? Or have we built kingdoms for ourselves here where things matter a whole lot more than they should? Are we holding so tightly to our financial securities, whatever that might look like, that we're unwilling, completely unwilling, to unload all of it if it meant furthering the gospel? Are we willing to be that irrational for the sake of the kingdom? Because these people were. Are we willing to do that? Or is that kind of activity foolish and beneath us? Are we able to look around at the followers of Jesus, at the lovers of Jesus, at the community of faith, and say with all assurity that there was not a needy person among them? Are we able to say that? As a faith community, are we able to look around and say there's not a needy person amongst us? Why is there not a needy person amongst us? Well, because we pointed them to a relief effort that could really care for their needs. No, there's not a needy person among them because amongst them, need was met through them. Because once they were filled with the Spirit, stewardship became not caring for my stuff well, it became caring for everyone well and stewarding what God has blessed me with to further the gospel. That's the definition of stewardship. Listen, that's why we collect money on Sundays. That's why a basket gets passed. And it's not so that you can just write a 10% check and just get in the habit of doing it. It's because we need to look at our stuff as not ours. And then we give that to a pot and there are people that are appointed to use that stuff, that money, to further the gospel and meet the needs of the saints. So I can just say, if you're not giving to the work of the church, it's one, evidence of a lack of discipleship, and two, you're robbing yourself of the blessing of truly looking at your stuff as God's and not yours. See, giving is a privilege, it's an honor Pastors don't like talking about it because what you put in the basket, some of it gets put in my bank account. So pastors don't like talking about it because anytime you talk about giving, it's like you just want more money. I'm fine. The Lord has always taken care of us. I'm more concerned for you if you don't give than I am concerned for the church if you don't give. Because God makes it very clear that the gates of this is His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If God wants Journey Church to succeed, your giving or not giving will not determine whether it succeeds or fails. God will take care of that. I'm concerned for you if you don't give. Because you're, you're hopefully... There's a discipleship process where we're understanding what the Word of God says and what discipleship looks like as we walk in this together, as we, as we figure out what it looks like to, to live out of the Spirit, to pray for boldness and then live in boldness. As we do that together as a faith community, we learn together, we walk together, just like these people did. They were in unity together. So there was a boldness in them. Yes, there was a, a spirit-led boldness and spirit-declared boldness. And then out of that was irrational activity. 
that was just used to respond to their prayers for boldness. How can I continue to boldly proclaim the gospel? And how can I help other people to do it the same? I don't think it's any mistake or any coincidence that several times it talks about the early church being unified, and one of the things that unified them was a unified view of their finances. And I also don't find it coincidental that it's one thing that becomes taboo to talk about in the church, that we shy away from it. Why would we shy away from it when it's so boldly proclaimed here to live like this, this, is what living in the fullness looks like. Proper view of stewardship is to understand that it's not yours anyway, it's God's. And never once see the people regret that. Next week, we're going to see some people that do. And it's because they have an improper view of their finances. So this isn't about money. This isn't about putting more money in a basket. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding who God is and who you are because of that. If our identity is not wrapped up in who Jesus is, then we will not live unified. We will not pray for boldness. We won't want it. It won't matter. We'll only want boldness when we're faced with persecution. And may I warn us as a church that Jesus said, the world will hate you because of me. That the world will hate you, but take heart. So I've already overcome the world. So we need to proclaim things like the song we're going to close out proclaims. It says, I may be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. You ask God, beg God to give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and your love is great. I may be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. And because of that, We pray for boldness. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the timeline of it. Thank you for how you orchestrated these, these narratives and these stories, these historical moments in the life of the church emerging and coming on the scene. The things that were threatened to the followers and yet their response to gather together and pray for boldness. And then out of that, have a unified life together where they were saying, God, this is yours and we want to use it to further the gospel. We want to use it to fund this boldness. We want to make sure that there's no needs in the body. We want to make sure that, we, that, we, that we're meeting those needs amongst one another. And it wasn't a response of conviction from a message. It was a response from the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I pray that as we are discipled, as we walk this path of faith, as we pray, give me faith to trust what you say, as we pray those prayers, that that we would learn from one another how to live that stuff out. The beauty of the early church is that they they lived together. They lived in community together. They, They fought these battles together. They learned from one another. They communicated with one another. God, may you fill us with more and more faith to understand who you are and understand what that means for our day-to-day life. I'm sure there's change that needs to take place in my life, Lord, and I pray that you continue, continually pluck that mess out of me. 
and give me boldness. Give me faith.